and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, we are in the middle of such a busy period in the life of the Horse and Hound eventing editor, which is my uh, other hat that I wear here at Horse and Hound was at Kentucky last week, off to badminton this week. It's such an exciting time and we're so happy to be able to share it all with you on the podcast and all our other platforms. Meanwhile, our interview this week is with showing producer Sean Linney, who talks about dealing with the pressures of the show ring. If you have those ring nerves, you know, those little tension moments between you and Jockey or you and Pony, that it always does show. So if you can just keep everything as fluent as possible. We'll review all the action from Kentucky, look forward to badminton and also discuss all the latest news on the Paris 2024 Olympics, as well as how the cost of living crisis is affecting equestrian competition. Finally, bits and bitting expert Tricia Nassau-Williams will talk about what to look for when buying a new bit. If you pick up a horse bit, just look at it, look at it all the way through because if it's pitted, then you could have a bit that could have a failure on you, could even be when you're going cross-country or something. So just make sure that it's smooth and well-finished. So we've got a lot to cover this week. Clip on your air jacket and let's get started. Hello and welcome to this week's Horse and Hound guest interview. I'm Alex Robinson, showing editor here at Horse and Hound. I hope everyone's having a great time getting back out and about in the show ring. We're very much into the season now with Royal International qualifiers underway. A few Horse of the Year show qualifiers have taken place too. And we're gearing up for Royal Windsor next week, which is so exciting. That's the first biggie in the calendar. And I can't wait to be there on foot reporting and yeah, scouting out all the best stories and hearing who's going to win. So this week we're joined by a very special guest, pony producer Sean Linney. She's one of the best pony producers in the country. She's led and produced ponies to titles at Horse of the Year Show, Royal International, the BSPS Summer Championships, among others. Um, So hi Sean, thanks so much for joining us. How are you? I'm really good, thank you, and hope you all are too. Perfect. Um, and as I said, so Sean, you're known for producing mini ponies. Um, you're probably best known for the taking the lead on the lovely Thistledown Van der Vaart, who was Hoy's Supreme in 2017. But I know you've also had a host of other wins at, wins at Hoy's. And we're very lucky to have you here to discuss mini pony production today. And hopefully there's some tips our listeners can take home. So Sean, how did you actually get into producing ponies? And, and why did you kind of go down the mini pony route? Well, basically... Um, it was one of those things that just happened, if you know what I mean. Um, I've always done ponies, always ridden all my life. And um, I was working as, as an accountant at, for, for my uncle, doing accountancy, um, alongside running ponies at home. Um, and I was leading a friend's ponies um, and we qualified them for Hoyes, which was absolutely amazing. And we went on to win and it was like winning the X Factor. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, Yes, yeah, so since that day, we went absolutely crazy with production ponies. And um, yeah, I love my mini ponies. I love working with children. Um, yeah, and it was it's full, full steam ahead from then, really. And as I said before, um, Hoy's 2017 was your first supreme win there. And that must have been absolutely amazing. I know Thistledown van der Vaart, who, who's known as Charles, has become one of the most consistent ponies on the circuit. And he's still out there, out and about there today. Can you just tell us about that experience and, you know, what it was like to win that big title? 
Winning the Supreme at Hoyes is absolutely incredible. Um, I never, ever thought it would happen to someone like me. Um, yeah, it was just the best feeling and with a pony that absolutely means the world to me. Um, I, I absolutely idolised Charles and everybody knows that. So, yeah, it was something very, very special. Wow. And Sean, many classes are as competitive as ever in 2022, but how can someone tell if a pony's going to make a top level lead drain or first ridden? And are there certain traits you'd look for in a young pony, you know, that you're, you know, scouting out as a potential mini ride? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the pony, yes, confirmation and everything has got to come into it. But I also think for a mini pony, they have to have the right attitude. You've got to put small children on these ponies. Um, so you have to feel very confident in the fact that they're going to cope with the environment um, and are going to manage what we throw at them. As long as you do your preparation at home. Yeah, that's a, the main key is prepare as much as you can at home. Uh, yeah, and go for it. Give it, give it a go. And how might you tell if a pony will make a lead rein or a first ridden? So, you know, you might, we might have a parent at home who's got a pony and isn't sure which kind of class it's best suited to. Are there certain characteristics that tend to suit a pony better um, as a lead rein and, and, and others which make them more suitable to, to going off the rein? Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, temperament comes into that as well. Um, but mainly you have your lead rein type, so slightly smaller, slightly typier mm-hmm. and... Yes, yeah, so you put your small jockeys on, your five-year-olds um, as a lead rein pony. And you, your first ridden are a, a much more scopier pony that will carry the bigger, the bigger jockey. Yeah. Super. And I can imagine it's a really hard job as, as a handler to, you know, ensure that you're doing the right thing in the ring. But are there any common mistakes that you kind of notice handlers often make and other things that handlers should definitely avoid while they're, while they're showing in the ring? Yes, with the handlers, I try and my main tip is for people to leave the pony alone, keep them flowing forward, nice and fluent, and try not to interfere with the pony at all, if possible. Um, and just focus on, yeah, sending yourself forward and the pony will come with you. If you're a little bit hesitant yourself, then the pony's going to be as well. And let's just turn back to um, the preparation that should should be done at home. What sort of training should people be doing with their lead reins, both with the child on and off the pony? We try and vary all the training, really. Try and do bits in the school yourself without jockey on, so you can get your confidence with the pony before you pop a jockey on. Um, and I always think that's great because then you kind of build a bond with the pony before you jockey, and then you can concentrate on helping the jockey if that makes sense, when you've got right. yourself and the pony together, you can then concentrate on saying to the jockey, oh, could you just help me do this or that? Do you get what I mean? And mm-hmm. sometimes with the smaller jockeys, if if they're missing beats or whatever, if you've got that confidence within the pony because you've been working with it, then, yeah, everything just falls into place a little bit better, if you get what I mean. Mm-hmm. And these mini classes seem to be getting bigger and bigger at the um, at the county shows. How can a combination make a lasting impression in these classes? I can imagine it does vary from your mountain and moorland ponies to your show ponies. But yeah, say you're in a big class with with your child and your leader and pony. How can you make a a strong impression and and, and kind of impress those judges? 
That's a tricky one because, as you say, these classes are so strong and everybody has given it their all. But if you have prepared as much as possible at home and you, you try and keep yourself as relaxed as possible, because I always think if you have those ring nerves or, you know, those little tension moments between you and Jockey or you and Pony, that it always does show. So if you can keep as relaxed as possible um, and do the best you can, give it your all, do your best show and everything, just keep everything as fluent as possible. Possible, I always think is the best key. And turnout's really important in leadering classes too. How do you go about finding the right outfit for um, for yourself as a handler and for the child and the pony? Because I can imagine it's quite hard to match, especially if you've got um, you know a little bay pony and and or a, or a grey, and everyone's kind of got the same outfits. How how do you pick the right outfit for the right pony? And how could a parent maybe or a handler go about selecting the right dress so the turnout looks perfect? That's it. Well, there's some fantastic companies out there within the horse industry that do the outfits um, and they're all pretty incredible at what they do. Um, yeah, I like to keep everything um, as smart as possible and, and it is hard nowadays because as you say, there's quite a few that are the same. So if you can just add some different touches, not too much, just to try and differ your outfit, um, then yeah, that always helps, you know, because as, as you say, there's so many grey ponies say in the M&M classes, if you can stick out just a bit by just doing a little bit on your outfit, that always helps. And Sean, let's say your lead rein jockeys may be moving into their final season on the rain and they're looking to, you know, slowly move into the first ridden classes. Are there any tips that, that people could take away to, to help their child, you know, successfully move on to first riddens? Well, the, what we do with that, that com- kind of combination, last year jockeys, um, practice as much as, uh, as you can at home um, and go to your smaller shows with, you know, your nice classes that, that you haven't got, say, 20 in the class. Just go to a show where you've got five in the class and give them a nice experience um, at a lovely show. And yeah, take it slowly. Don't rush things too soon. Um, and it all should just come together. As I say, keep practicing at home. Even just if you're going to a show on the lead drain, have a trot around the collector ring off the lead. Um, and that always just gives you, gives the children that bit of a boost to think, yeah, I can do it while I'm at a show. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks, Sean. Just before you go, it'd be lovely to hear if you have any combinations you're particularly excited about it, about to come out this year. Is there, is there a few new ponies on your team you could tell us about? Yes, we've got some really exciting new combinations this year. Um, probably the the, mo- the most combina- new combinations we've had. Uh, we've got a lovely new show pony lead rein, um, some exciting novice M&M lead reins to come, um, some that still haven't been out yet, so they're still fresh to the circuit. Um, so yes, some new 13-2 show ponies. We've got all sorts, section Cs. Right across the spectrum, we've got some new combinations still yet to come out. So, yeah, keep a lookout for them, guys, because they are lovely. <laughs> well, thanks, Sean. Um, thank you so much for those tips. And, yeah, we can't wait to hear about your team and, and how you're going to get on this show season. Thanks, Sean. Thank you so much. So I'm joined now by my horse and hound colleague, Catherine Austin. We are going to have a chat about the Land Rover Kentucky three-day event presented by Mars Equestrian, which of course happened last week, the very first five-star of the 2022 season. I was lucky enough to be there. Catherine, you were following avidly from home. It was a great competition, wasn't it? 
It was, and I was very jealous of you being there, but I did watch a lot of it on the live stream, which was it was a lot of fun. Um, exciting. Yeah, it was. It was. It was a great competition. I was so lucky to be there. It was. I think everyone was so just delighted to be back at Kentucky. Obviously, they didn't have spectators last year, even though they did run the competition behind closed doors. And there was a super atmosphere all week among the riders, the crowds. And as you say, it was a really exciting event. Yes, I love the fact that I, I don't want to, no spoilers, but I love the fact that the winner said on the live stream in his interview that it just made everything so much better having the public there. Yeah, no, that was that was a lovely comment from Michael and a lot of riders said the same thing. So on to our winner, Michael Young. He is just phenomenal, isn't he, Catherine? <laughs> I mean, ridiculous. What, what a man, what a horse, what a competitor, what a horseman. He led the dressage on 20.1, a superlative record-breaking, well, no, not a record-breaking dressage score, but a record-breaking finishing score. And he completed on that. You cannot ask for more. And he was so far ahead. I mean, he this combination lost out on a win at the Tokyo Olympics because they broke a frangible pin. This time, he could have broken a frangible pin and still won. I know. Uh, he, his finishing score of 20.1 was 11.6 penalties ahead of the second place person. Wow. And what, a, what a luxury it must be to go into the final show jumping phase. I mean, not only as an extremely good show jumper, but with two fences in hand. How lovely that is. Of course, he didn't need them. He is a real joy to watch and you have an enormously safe, comfortable feeling watching him because you think, oh, well, let's just watch it and enjoy it. Yeah, and there was never a dodgy moment all weekend in any of the phases, I don't think. So hats off to Michael Young. He started as the favourite. I think Equ Ratings, the data analytics company, gave him a 41% win chance and uh, he you know, justified that very strong favouritism for sure. And how lovely that Britain's Yasmin Ingham, riding the most gorgeous horse, Banzai Dudois, who was competing at his first five-star, having won Blenheim four-star long last year, finished second. She was tremendous, I thought. She rode beautifully, with great judgment, with skill, with bravery, really nailed it. Good girl, well done. Yeah, and was super composed all week. She rode like a really experienced rider. And we said to her after the final show, I think, you know, were you nervous? And she said she'd barely eaten for three days and was looking forward to being able to tuck into some solid food after just living on water <laughs> and energy drinks. But she didn't ride as if she had any nerves. She gave the horse confidence, I think, every step of the way across country. And sometimes, you know, she just gave him time to see the questions and really relied on his scope that she didn't need to be punch, punch, punch and be super aggressive, which young riders can sometimes be when they don't almost need to be in their early five star runs. But Yaz didn't do that. She let the horse look, obviously helped by the fact he is very scopey, so she didn't have to to, to be super aggressive. Um, he's a very fast horse. They were a few seconds over the time, but that won't won't be worrying Yaz. There'll be no problem with that pair making the time in the future when they both have a little more experience. But it was an incredibly impressive performance from the youngest rider in the field. Yes, and how lovely for the horse's owners, Sue Davis and Jeanette Chin, to know that they've got a really competitive five-star horse because you don't know. However brilliant a horse has been on the way up to that level, you don't know until it gets there. Yeah, and he was bought as a horse for the top level. You know, they've always said he's a Paris prospect and he certainly sort of justified that label this weekend, I think. 
quite. Um, there's a long way to go until Paris. Uh, but you'd be thinking world championships in Bretoni, possibly. You know, we have badminton this week. We have an extraordinary amount of wonderful British combinations to watch. But they are the first to put their... 2022 you know punch out there and say look at us we're really worthy definitely i would be saying it's the odds are in her favor for maybe an individual spot at those Pretoria world mm. championships as you say other brits there catherine and um, pippa funnel was on on great form all week wasn't she I bet, yeah, I bet it was really fun to have her to talk to after each phase because she is such a good communicator and speaks so well about her horses. Well done, Pippa. She is the only person in the world to have had two horses at Kentucky and to have two horses at Badminton this week. It's like 2003 all over again. Yeah, exactly. And yes, she was on great form. These two very different horses. Maya's Hope, quite an experienced horse, but one who can be quite strong and really take on the cross country in a headstrong fashion. And, you know, she she had some time faults on him and said she could have gone faster, but she's not a rider who likes to take a lot of chances and a lot of risks. And he wasn't backing himself off. She said after the head of the lake, which was a bit of a twisting, turning water question, she let him run on down to the next big oxer and he didn't back himself off, hit the front rail quite hard. And she was like, oh, OK, no. I can't just let you get on with this. So she did just just make sure of the fences. But um, he gave her a good ride, gave her confidence for, for Maybach, her mm. second horse. He's a younger horse. It was his first five star. He did tire towards the end of the course, but she really nursed him home. And he jumped a great clear on Sunday as well to finish sixth. Yeah, that was a very eye-catching show jumping round. Well done to both of them. And um, I really think you know, Pippa makes no secret about the fact that she needs confidence cross-country, despite her endless experience and what a boost going into Babington to have done so well at her, a five star the week before. Definitely. I do hope Pippa's going to get a couple of good nights sleep. I'm. It's it's Monday as we're recording, although this won't be out till the end of the week. And I spent the night on a plane. So did Pippa. And she said she hasn't been sleeping well all week. She said her nerves are getting worse, not better with age. And she's not sleeping at night now with her nerves. So I hope she's going to at least get two or three nights sleep before the badminton nerves kick in too hard. Ooh, you'd be pretty wired, wouldn't you? That's the problem. Yeah, definitely. Bless her. So we also had Sarah Bullymore there for Britain she started out really well in the dressage didn't she Catherine super test yeah lovely very very enjoyable to watch she she produces him extremely well in this phase yeah, so she was riding Corroe, her her young homebred horse, who was the European individual bronze medalist last year. And as she say, as you say, she did a great dressage test. She was second after that phase, the closest person to Michael Young. Things did unravel a little bit on cross country day. She had some awkward moments early in the course, and then a twenty penalties towards the end. I don't think the horse had the rideability that Sarah would hope for. He is a very, very, very talented horse. An exuberant jumper and can not always give Sarah the the sort of compliance that she might want in terms of being able to ride him and I think maybe that showed up a little bit this weekend and it's something Sarah will be looking to address in her training going forwards and I think just at the end of the course he got a little tired and where normally his real natural ability would allow him to jump himself out of trouble he couldn't because he had tired a little having over jumped the beginning of the course and so ended up with that 20 penalties um, but I think that he is still a very exciting horse for the future he's got that real quality in the dressage and he can be even better than he was in the dressage at Kentucky and if she can work on that rideability in the cross country 
I do think they have it all there for the future. Yes, I wonder if he will learn that he can't just rely on his scope. I mean, that's a rather human thing to say about a horse, but he has such scope and he clearly knows it. Maybe he'll learn to listen to Sarah and take a little more direction because it's all there, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And as you say, it is all about listening to Sarah. She uh, she very much says that he thinks he thinks he knows best. And there have certainly been stages in his career before where he's thought he doesn't really need mum on top. And then he's come through the other side of those. So hopefully that's a phase he'll he'll go through and come out of again at five star. Yeah, that that was Sarah Bullimore's weekend. She finished up twentieth, uh, so not a disgrace by any stretch of the imagination, but not the result you'd hope for putting a horse on the plane. A quick word about the home side competitors, Catherine. Who did we have up there for the US? Well, Doug Payne was is the new American national champion. He finished highest place in third on Quantum Leap. I don't know Quantum Leap as well as I know Doug Payne's other top horse, Van Diva, whom he rode at the Tokyo Olympics. What do we say about the Americans? Good effort, but they're still a way off winning Kentucky, which is such a shame for them. You know, Boyd Martin won the inaugural Maryland five-star last autumn, which was a really big deal. And they would have been, even with Mickey Young in the field, they would have been hopeful, I think, of... Well, winning or finishing second, at least. The Americans in general who have finished in the top 10, mostly are the people that we would expect to see there, the very experienced ones, Doug Payne, Boyd Martin, Buck Davison, Will Coleman, and a little bit actually further down, Philip Dutton, who was one of the very few to go clear inside the time across country. But you have to say that where are the chasing pack? Yes, some things didn't go right for certain people, and that can always happen. But for a country with so much resource and lots of talent and lots of help, where are they? Yeah, I have to say I agree with you, Catherine. I am very much looking forward to seeing Tammy Smith and my bum and also yes. Ariel Grawled and Leomel Masterplan at Badminton this week. And I kind of hope they might be the chasing pack. One uh, one rider who I did really enjoy talking to from the US this week was Alex McLeod, who finished up just inside the top 20. I don't think she's necessarily the future of US team riding. She's a full-time vet, um, so not a full-time event rider, um, but uh, an amateur making a go of it with one horse who she has a great partnership with and she said after the cross country he's a scrappy little horse and it was a scrappy round but he gets it done and he just loves to keep going for her you know she chipped in two strides in a couple of places where she should have had one chipped in extra strides in the show jumping but he does just keep keep going forward and a really creditable round for her with 11.2 time faults cross country she was best of the home side five star first timers so maybe not the future of american team riding but a fun rider to watch for a few years i think and we should mention that Boyd Martin and his lovely Tetzeleg Black Horse, they were also clear inside the time cross country, a really polished grown up performance from them. And it, that should be noted. Yeah, and Boyd was sort of laying to rest the ghosts of last year when he and Setzeleg fell late on the cross country. Um, he did have two show jumps down, which was disappointing. And yeah, Philip Dutton also inside the time, obviously very experienced rider with the ex-racehorse Sea of Clouds. He's also at Badminton this week. So yeah, I agree with you. The Americans are still not quite where they would want to be for sure.
I tell you who, fair play to Joseph Mur- Ireland's Joseph Murphy, who finished ninth on Calmaro. I mean, his show jumping, his clear show jumping round was interesting. It does not look the easiest horse in the world. Has quite a, it's quite a distinctive individual style of jumping. But uh, well done to Joseph. And they survived a couple of dodgy moments cross country, 9.6 time penalties. But ninth place in a five star is not to be sniffed at. And we know and we know and love Joseph. He's a great horseman and and always a nice person on the circuit to see around. Yeah, definitely. I was impressed with Joseph's riding this weekend because he managed to be both sympathetic to a horse who is green at this level and was at times over jumping because of that greenness and also competitive. And it's not always easy to match those two things, is it? Sometimes by being sympathetic, you have to take the competitiveness away and he managed to still be competitive and, as you say, finish ninth. So good for him. Well, Catherine, I think that's uh, the main players from Kentucky covered off. Obviously, lots more coverage in Horse and Hound magazine this week, as well as our full badminton form guide. So I think we have to say goodbye to that five star and we will be at badminton this week. Well, that's the thing. It's straight on to the next five star. What a joy to have badminton back. You and I will both be there. I hope you get a little bit of sleep before then otherwise I'll have to poke you with my pen to keep you awake but looking forward to seeing you (laughs) I'm very much looking forward to being poked with your pen at Babington (laughs) (laughs) see you then So going from Kentucky to this week's Badminton Horse Trials presented by Mars Equestrian, we are so excited to be back at Badminton after three years away. And to give you a quick preview of the event, I am joined by my colleagues Gemma Redrup and Lucy Elder, who will both be at Badminton with me this week, as well as another member of our team, Martha Terry and our photographer, Peter Nixon. So we are a massive team. We're all very excited. Lucy, tell me one thing that you're most looking forward to doing now that we're finally back at Badminton after all this time away. Oh, there's so many things. I was thinking about this when um, when you asked me earlier, and I, my excitement for badminton always peaks on the drive-in when you finally can tune into Radio Badminton and you see everyone else going in the same direction. But if I had to pin it down, I think I'm really excited to see the course again. Obviously, I was really lucky to go for the preview, but there were no numbers, the fences weren't dressed, so I can't wait to see how that looks when uh, when we get there this week. How about you, Pippa? For me, it's the it's the mix zone, which is where I will yep. be spending most of my time. It's I feel like all of the excitement of life is contained in that tiny little box where uh, there's riders on one side of the fence and journalists on the other side of the fence, and you're dealing with the uh, the highest highs and the lowest lows of competition, and just hearing the most exciting and incredible stories. So I'm looking forward to standing there, chewing my pen, um, and hearing some really brilliant stories from all of the riders. How about you, Gemma? Uh, Yeah, like Lucy said, I was trying to pin it down. And for me, it's the buzz. It's trying to be in 10,000 different places (laughs) at once. And just, yeah, running around, getting as as much information as you can um, with just this amazing atmosphere and, you know, horses and riders in particular that I've looked up to my whole life and getting to talk to them. And it's my job and it's great. Um, So, yeah, I think just the whole whole thing for me, that the whole like energy around the place is is what I'm most looking forward to going back to. 
Mm, and having been at Kentucky last week, people were so excited to be back after all that time away, particularly obviously Kentucky did run last year, but without spectators. So it was definitely a different buzz. And looking back to our previous badmintons, Lucy, give me one badminton memory, which is particularly special for you. So this comes back actually to what you were both just saying about the buzz. I think my first year working for Horse and Hound at Badminton was in 2018. And the moment that Janelle Price and Classic Moe won, the energy in that mix zone and the collecting ring area around it was, it was something I have never quite experienced before. And I love, I love my life for horse sport. I've, you know, been to big days and things as a spectator, but it was, it was on another level. And I think it's because it's prolonged, but you're also right in the middle of it. And there's that thrill and all that emotion that's going on all around you, all these emotions. And because you followed it so intently throughout, you spent, as Jen was saying, the whole week trying to be in about 15 different places at once and thinking, oh gosh, I want to get that really good quote or, oh my goodness, that was an amazing story that we've just heard. And all of that kind of comes into this huge like surge of um, excitement and emotion. And on my way home, I think I got about as far as Gloucester services um, and I had to stop for some chicken nuggets and just reflect <laughs> over those for a while and sort of sit with these emotions for a while. Um, and yeah, I think it's chasing that high that makes sports journalism so addictive, isn't it really? But um, yeah, how about you, Pippa? I am going to go for five years earlier, 2013, um, which was the year that we had the Grand Slam showdown. So I remember that I wrote a, f a feature for our preview of uh, that year, which was about the fact that William Foxpit was going for the Grand Slam after a bit of a prolonged wait because of event cancellations and that he was going up against Michael Young who was making his badminton debut that was very exciting because he was already a uh, multi-medal championship rider and was bringing the great labiestetique Sam and I wrote this piece about the head-to-head -head between you know William's experience and the Grand Slam story and Michael this you know super new talent from Germany making his badminton debut and then we had Kentucky the week before which Andrew Nicholson won and suddenly we had two riders going for the Rolex Grand Slam and um, which became the most amazing story and there was a lot of press around that in the mainstream media obviously the history of William and Andrew having uh, quite a lot of conflict through their lives and rivalry um, and I remember some mainstream journalists turning up and putting their spin on that and I remember there were various sort of breakfast and lunch opportunities with the riders to talk about it and it was just such a live story all week and then at the very end of the day the competition was won by Jock Paget, who was a first timer didn't come into the event as a favorite in any way so that is one of my big big and favorite badminton memories what about you Gemma? Um, on a personal level it would be um, Piggy March or French as she was then winning um, in 2019 and actually which makes her still a reigning badminton champion on Vanir Kamira um, and also Andrew Nicholson's uh, win in 2017 on Nareo after God knows how many years of, of trying. But for me, on its more personal level, I actually groomed for a rider there in 2009, uh, Richard Jones, who's competing again this year on Alfie's Clover. Uh, and that was, I, I worked for Richard at the time as a, as a working pupil. And getting to groom at badminton and walk through, you know, the famous archway and have your horse in the, your horses that you're looking after in, in the, in those amazing stable yards was just like a real pinch myself moment for me. And he completed as well on, um, on Inca. So 
uh, it was really exciting and actually jumped clear cross country. So I'll never forget them coming through the finish like we see so many people doing at badminton and just jumping around <laughs> at the thought, you know, he only had to get over the last fence. It was really exciting. So, yeah, on a personal level, it would be yeah getting to green there all those years ago now feel very old <laughs> <laughs> oh well yeah richard jones with ink and winter i i remember him too and he was a great gemma so you probably had your work cut out keeping him clean oh it was impossible that horse <laughs> <laughs> it was really impossible one of those grays where no matter how hard you scrubbed there was just one stain that would never come off so yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh well well done i have to say on a similar personal level i will uh, always remember lucinda fredericks winning in 2007 because i had worked for lucinda and clayton fredericks who were together still then as a working people in my gap year which was somewhat before 2007 but uh, it was pretty special to then be working at the event and, and reporting when lucinda and one having that personal connection as well. So I've managed to slip in two memories there. This is totally <laughs> cheating, but never mind. We are going to move on to predicting our winners for this year. Gemma, I'm going to come to you first this time. You've got the pick of the bunch. Who is Yay. your winner for 2022? <laughs> well, I wrote down three in case you put me last. So now <laughs> I've got to think about who I'm going to pick. I'm going to go Tom McEwen on Toledo de Cursa is my pick. He is one of my most favourite horses out there. Uh, doesn't have a weak phase, obviously was one in silver at, um, at Tokyo. And I really like Tom as well as a person. So I'm going to back him and, um, and hope that, that they can do it. I feel like it's, yeah, it's well within their capabilities for sure. How, how about you guys? Go on then, Lucy, you go next. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, Tom and Toledo de Cursa were going to be my pick. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> but Gemma got there first. Um, uh, yeah, like, I agree with everything Gemma said. And they've had, I think it's something ridiculous, like two rails ever on their international record, which is unbelievable. But, but to keep things different, I... I think Laura Collett could do it, London 52, obviously teammates Tom out in Tokyo on that gold medal winning team. Their record is just unbelievable to the point that last year, I think we all of us journalists interviewed Laura about London 52 so many times because they just kept winning. They are brilliant. They're fantastic. I adore watching that horse across country. And there's a lot of people on there that I would like to win. Obviously, I want everyone to have a good week. But for me, I think it's between Tom and Laura this year. It's really interesting, actually, because I was looking at the Equi Ratings Prediction Centre, those clever boys and girls at Equi Ratings who uh, have so much data around our sport. And Laura is the favourite on their Prediction Centre, 15% win chance. Tom is the second favourite, 11% win chance. For me, we've got that golden trio there at the top, Laura, Tom and Oliver Tannen with Ballamore Class. Mm. So for me, those three are definitely out ahead of anyone else. I would add now that we've lost uh, Brookfield Innocent, Piggy March's horse, who was sadly withdrawn last week because I would have put him up there on a level with those three, I have to say. But Ballamore Class is only 5% win chance in the Prediction Centre. There's a few others between Laura and Tom and him and I am surprised about that. I don't know whether the fact that he had 12 show jumping faults at Burner Market recently is hurting his rating a little bit. Mm. Uh, but that certainly is quite an outlier in his record. So I'm going to go for the third one of that golden trio, Oliver Townend and Ballamore class. So I think we've hopefully well got got what I consider the three favourites covered between, uh, between <laughs> us there. Ballamore class has the most outstanding record, two wins at five star, number of other placings at that top level, fifth individually at Tokyo. So 
There we go, listeners. Maybe we'll get a surprise. Maybe it'll be one of those three. But uh, you may get a chance to hear our predictions again if you're listening to our daily podcast during Babington because we'll cover them again on our daily podcast tomorrow, Wednesday. So we'll see if we all say the same or different then. <laughs> I think we're all going to reserve the right to change our minds. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so finally, let's give the listeners a little bit of a flavour of what they can expect from Horse and Hound at Badminton this week. We're all going to be running around doing lots of different things, but we've all got our our baby, I think, which is our particular area of responsibility. Gemma, you go first. What are you going to be doing? So, yeah, so I'm going to be hosting the our daily podcast from, from Badminton. So at the end of each day, all of us that are there will sit down together and just talk about what's happened that day. As you said, a few predictions for the following day. And, and anything in between as well. I know we'll, we'll be having some interviews with some, some riders as well that will be cut in there. So yeah, just having a good old chat each day about, about what's going on at Badminton, hopefully. Yep, and we're very lucky that those podcasts are being supported by Bailey's Performance yep. Balancer. Lucy, what about you? What's your focus going to be? I'm really excited this week to be doing the video output which is supported by NAF uh, so you'll be seeing a couple of videos a day from me it'll be some features that I've already got lined up which I can't wait to bring you and uh, some daily news roundups as well featuring interviews with riders discussing the best of the day's action and what to look ahead for the following day so yes that is going to be very exciting this week and Pippa how about you? I will be focusing from a writing side on our magazine report. So it's a massive report that we have on badminton in next week's issue out on the 12th of May. So lots and lots of words to write there and columnists to coordinate and so on. As part of that, I will obviously be down in the mix zone, as I say, talking to lots of riders. The uh, interviews that I do will also be picked up by Martha and Gemma, who will be focusing on writing our written coverage for the website as well. So we'll be running a system that allows us to bring you reports all the way through the action where I'm down in the mix zone and I'm sending my sound files back to Gemma and Martha um, who will be then picking them up and writing stories as we go through the day and we'll also be putting out some more feature style content so looking at the first timers, the grooms, the riders who have interesting stories so not just the, uh, the, the top contenders but those further down the leaderboard who have some brilliant stories to share as well so we've got so much going on this week at, uh, at badminton and we look forward to sharing all of that with you our listeners and readers across lots of platforms and um, so daily podcasts video written coverage on our website and next week's magazine and of course next week's weekly podcast too so we look forward to sharing all of that with you see you at badminton lucy and Gemma. I can't believe it's here. <laughs> see you there. Yeah, see you there. So I'm joined now by all three members of our news team to look at the stories they've been collecting over the past week. Hello, Eleanor, our news editor. How are you? I'm all good, thank you. Had a good week. Uh, have you had an amazing week out, uh, on the other side of the world? <laughs> yes, just been chatting with Catherine about that here on the podcast. But uh, yeah, had a really great time at Kentucky and now looking forward to Babington. So it's all happening. <laughs> it's nonstop. <laughs> it definitely is. And we also have on our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. How are you, Lucy? I'm very well, thank you, Pippa. I've been at a wedding this weekend. I love a wedding. It was one of my oldest friends and um, who I know through horses. And it kind of, it got me thinking how 
how wonderful it is what horses bring to us in our lives, you know, as well as the connection with them, all those other connections with people and things. So we used to be charging around the countryside on our ponies and it was it was really wonderful actually seeing her uh, getting married this weekend. So full of love and joy. Over oh, here. I do love a good wedding. I haven't mm. been to a wedding since before COVID, so I've got one later in May actually. Looking forward to that. We also have with us our other senior news writer, Becky Murray. How are you, Becky? I'm good, thank you. I was off last week enjoying the cloudy weather. Um, I had my mum's two dogs staying with me, actually, so I spent most of the week supervising them, which was... With four dogs in the house, it kept me very busy. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, yeah, that does sound quite intense. Well, hopefully, have you now returned them all in, in one piece and happy and well? Yes, I have. And actually, they are now en route with my mother to badminton. So very lucky oh. dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So if I see someone who looks a bit like an older Becky, should I say, are you Becky's mum? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> with four dogs in tow. Okay, great. Well, Lucy, you have been looking at the next Olympics in Paris this past week. And there's an awful lot in the story that you've written about this for the magazine. So we won't try to cover all of it here, but some of it. Let's start by talking about the event itself. What What is the latest on the sort of organisational side of that? Yes, Pippa, like you said, there is a huge amount of background to this and the event itself. So I'll give a little bit of a really quick whistle-stop tour just to put it into context. Um, So because there's three years instead of four in this Olympic cycle, everything's a bit shortened in terms of the time frame on discussions about horse sports and uh, disciplines are going to work in Paris. So again, we know there's three to a team in Paris in Paris uh, that was rubber stamped at the General Assembly in November and then the sports forum which happened at the end of April which is where these latest um, these latest developments have happened um, it's kind of a key time for the stakeholders to thrash out and debate possible rules how things are going to look and work at the next games but that of course coming to your question here now um, leads to a lot of logistical questions because you can have all the rules you want in the world but if they aren't going to work in terms of the structure and the framework and how many horses you can have on site at a time or what the timetable looks like then that has to be a part of it really doesn't it so we heard at the sports forum that the organizing committee is not yet in place for equestrian sport so those kinds of questions you know will it work can we have all the horses from all the disciplines here at the same time will there be enough stables for them to do that um, in order for that to work in in the ideal timetable those kind of questions um, couldn't quite be answered just yet so that is a bit of a sticking point especially when you then look to the other questions people want to answer the the sort of finer details that's still rather a grey area Uh, but we did hear that a committee is set to be in place by the end of May so once that's there the FEI can then liaise further with them on those on those points Um, Um, But right now there is that question mark over some of the framework. And that's not to say there wasn't lots of discussion how things could look, how things might look, um, what's coming. Um, But yeah, there's some some kind of structural things that uh, that we need answers on as well, really. Okay, so we're looking forward to an organising committee being put in place pretty soon, it sounds Mm -hmm. like, and hearing who who will be in charge at that Games. And there was a lot of discussion about the qualifications and formats that sports forum as well. And Mm. I think some of the most significant changes are in show jumping from the sounds of it. Tell us about those. 
Yeah, so the big one here was the suggestion to uh, to swap to have the uh, the team final before the individual final, which uh, was the case at Games Before Tokyo, and again is kind of a natural progression to having you know the biggest course, the uh, the individual champion crowned right at the end. Um, but again, they said you know they they tried it at Tokyo, and that's why you know you try things, you find out what works, what what can be improved on. So which is which really is what the sports forum is all about, which is why I find it quite interesting and exciting these aren't you know firm things that are definitely happening this is rather one of the big the big milestones if you like on to give a, an impression of how things might look what's being talked about what's going to be refined over the summer before it's uh, it's given an, a definite answer and again at the general assembly in november uh, there was also quite a lot of discussion about um whether a maximum faults in an olympic round would have prevented some of the uh, some of the uncomfortable scenes uh, in Tokyo uh, in the in the team jumping and it was concluded that it wouldn't uh, which is quite interesting that they've run the numbers they've done stats on that and and really looked into that so what the FEI jumping committee has been talking about is whether to introduce a ruling where the ground jury has you know a really watertight way of stopping a rider and what conditions and what situations uh, would be where the ground jury takes over that responsibility from the rider to say look you're not having a good day um and and that sort of shift in responsibility which i find really interesting in terms of you know rider responsibility ground jury's responsibility where where the line is on that so i think that could be quite interesting to see how that develops over the summer too Mm, and of course, something that's something we do have in eventing on cross country is the facility mm. for for ground juries to pull up a rider. But I know even on eventing where you're looking at a much longer course and everything taking a lot longer, it's uh, it's always a hard decision mm -hmm. for the ground jury to take over that responsibility and, and deny the rider the chance to carry on competing without them actually being eliminated. And that's over a course that's maybe you know eight or 11 minutes and it can take a, a good couple of minutes sometimes to make that decision so i can't quite see how it would work over a course that's only you know 90 seconds long but it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that yeah it will be as you said it's it's it happens so quickly that yeah how you can make a rule to to do that and to have those things all in place i i don't know how they'll do it or if it's even feasible but as you said really really interesting interesting points and crossovers with eventing there mm. and tell us about a couple of the changes that have come in or may come in rather in the other sports too so again, I think you touched on um, some of the minimum eligibility requirements uh, being strengthened in show jumping. That's something that is being strengthened across the board, really. And I go into a lot more detail about that in, in the magazine copy and, and, and the version online as well. Uh, so that's interesting. Again, it's the, the overall theme there without getting too into the nitty gritty of each and points and, and penalties and things is rewarding consistency. So what what they're trying to encourage and promote is that um, the combinations, of course, that are getting to the games are consistently performing at a standard that they should be there uh, is, is the aim of the game. And there's been some discussion as well, which I thought was really interesting about how it might be possible to include the top 10 teams rather than the top eight teams in the dressage team final without making that any longer. Because again, this comes back to a little bit about what I was saying about the framework. Uh, but Olympics, is it's very... They don't, there's not wriggle, huge amounts of wriggle room, really. So it's a case of if we 
cut that break there? Can we include some more people? And, you know, will we have more time uh, to include a few more riders and so a few more teams in the final here? Uh, you don't have huge chunks of endless time to, to play with uh, at, at the Games. So I thought that was quite interesting. And especially what people were saying about what it would mean for for countries that are developing in horse sport and, and what that gives to be able to say that our team was was placed, you know, in the top 10 at the dressage in team final at the Olympics and things and and the impact that that has on developing the sport globally. So, yeah, loads of loads of interesting points come out of, of that discussion. Mm, well, definitely. And uh, everyone who's got an interest in that should certainly take a look at Lucy's online stories and in the magazine because there are, there's, there's so much contained there. Thank you, Lucy. Eleanor, you have been looking at a story that also came out of the Sports Forum and it relates to last year's equine herpes outbreak and some proposals for improving processes and so on following that. What was discussed? Yeah, so this was as part of they on the second day, they looked at um, the general rules and the veterinary rules, among other things. And of course, uh, the veterinary rules focused on last year's awful outbreak uh, in which 18 horses died. And uh, the veterinary director, Jenny Hall, said, you know, we worked, everyone worked hard to get over that outbreak. And now it's about how we move on. So Lutz Goering, who is a professor of equine infectious diseases, was gave a good sort of explanation of, of EHV and the neurological form in particular, which he referred to as EHM. And he was talking about sort of what happens and what the danger points are and how it's spread. And he did talk about the fact that there are a number of, of vaccinations against EHV, but that none of them claim to prevent the neurological form of the disease. He was saying that if a horse is vaccinated, it will help reduce the number of horses in, a, in an outbreak who get EHM but would not abolish it or wouldn't prevent an outbreak completely. Mm, and I think it's something we're really familiar with now in the world of COVID is that even sort of widespread or compulsory vaccination isn't a silver bullet to put an end to a disease. And that, that was something that was being warned about, wasn't it? Yeah, so his his uh, way of looking at it was it takes a whole village. Um, he was saying that you would need vaccination coverage of over 85% of horses, but also everyone has to have what he called a concerted effort. So you've got to comply with all the protective measures and all the things that have been brought in and be a bit proactive, but also, you know, best practice biosecurity and, and considering like the physical distance and the physical barriers between horses at uh, events are important. And also if a horse who has got the virus has to be moved into isolation as soon as possible all those things you, you can't just vaccinate and go oh it's all fine now you have to do sort of all these all these different things as well mm. and there's a new measure that's designed to combat the spread of EHV already in place at FEI events this year isn't there yeah, so there's this one of the things that's been brought in is that the uh, horses' temperatures has to have to be recorded every day on the on the FEI horse app. So that that's continuing. But one thing that came up sort of in this discussion and in the general rules discussion, which looked at facilities at events, is that sometimes there's not enough Wi-Fi at events to be able to use the app to record the temperature properly. So people have been fined by that. So they're, they're going to look into all these things and, and the FEI veterinary director, Gurren Strum put forward two proposals that could be considered. One is that the FEI will just keep looking for more input and reviewing the situation and defer any rule proposal on mandatory EHV vaccination to next year's General Assembly at the earliest, or possibly they might introduce mandatory vaccination from 2025. So it's all a bit 
sort of see what happens basically Mm, okay well we'll be keeping an eye on that thank you Eleanor Becky we have heard a lot about the cost of living crisis in the mainstream media recently and you have been looking at how that's affecting competition in the horse world the cost of fuel is obviously a big one for uh, people driving around in big lorries or even small lorries and uh, and trailers and so on can you give us some of the facts and some of the opinions around that that you've been looking at this week Absolutely. Um, so according to the AE, in March, the average UK fuel costs were 163.8 pence per litre for petrol and 173.8 pence for diesel. Now, if you compare that to March 2021, it was 125.3 pence for petrol and 128.2 pence for diesel. Now, obviously, this is affecting so many people across the UK. And I spoke to one rider who said a 120 mile round trip for a training session cost her £80 in fuel. And she is now having to choose which competition she does. And she's really trying to stay local. And she has two horses and she has to choose which one she's going to take out. I also spoke to a coach, Claire Light, who said she's found that riders are having to choose between competing and having lessons which of course is a big concern for her is that that's her income as a coach. So she's having to consider whether she can compete this summer or whether she keeps that money in her bank for later in the year. And I know that you also spoke to some organisers whose events are being affected by sort of drops in entries and so on. What, what did they say? What are you hearing? Well, British eventing fixtures do seem to be really affected in terms of entries and events such as Swalcliffe Park, Bovington and Broadway have had to cancel owing to lack of entries. I spoke to Robert Sayre, who is the organiser of Great Witchingham. They had to drop a day for their March fixture and Robert said they received 411 entries. And actually, if you compare that to 2020, they received 710, but that event was obviously cancelled owing to COVID. I also spoke to Jenny Meeklejohn of Musketeer Events. Um, they organise a number of fixtures, including Sirencester Park and Burnham Market. Now, Jenny said she believes the grassroots level classes are, seem to be mostly affected. And actually, their advanced classes have been quite well supported in terms of entries. I also looked at show jumping and I spoke to Jane Gregory of Shard Equestrian and she said their shows have been well supported but where riders are competing midweek they're actually staying on for a weekend show to save making the two journeys and try and save that bit of fuel. I guess that maybe that's a reflection of sort of the amateur versus professional market where we're seeing grassroots competitions particularly affected that professionals have to sort of keep battering on because it's their livelihood, however much it's costing them. Whereas for grassroots, for those of us who are amateurs, it is a hobby and, and it is sort of optional to just to compete less, I suppose. Absolutely. And Jenny Meeklejohn also pointed out it, Musketeer run a series of unaffiliated events and she said it'll be interesting to see how the market reacts there and whether those unaffiliated events are affected the same. Mm. Well, I think that uh, unaffiliated versus affiliated is a topic we'll leave for another day. Um, it's a big one. But final question for you, Becky, on this story. One of the angles you also looked at was how all this impacts volunteers and judges. What do, were people saying about that? 
Well, Jenny said the issue around finding volunteers isn't a new issue, but this has been exacerbated by fuel costs. I also spoke to one judge, Zara Polly, who does showing and British dressage judging, and she said she's having to, she is having to let, do less judging this year. Simply, she can't afford to do as many shows, and where you know she's spending eighty pound on a tank of fuel. Wow, yeah, and I thought it was quite interesting that Jenny also mentioned that maybe we could be clever about how we use our volunteers and looking at some ways that that we could maybe make do with fewer jump judges, for example. So do pick up on all that in Becky's story in this week's magazine. Thank you very much, Becky, and thank you to Eleanor and Lucy for joining us today too. Now we're going over to Trisha Nassau-Williams. Trisha is a qualified saddler, saddle fitter, bit and bridle fitter, and liveryman at the Worshipful Company of Lorreners. She's lectured in lorinary, that is, bits and bridling, to saddlery students at Capel Manor College for many years. Having previously run her own retail saddlery shop specialising in lorinary and saddle fitting, she now works as the field officer and lorinary consultant for the British Equestrian Trade Association. Over to you, Tricia. So in this episode, we're going to look at what you should be observing when purchasing a new bit. With bits, it really is worth taking a little time and trouble and also getting used to just looking at them and observing if they are a good quality item to put into your horse's mouth. So first of all, if you pick up a horse bit, just look at it. Look at it all the way through. See if the finish is smooth and consistent on it. Because if it's pitted, uh, when it's been burnished in the final stages of its uh, manufacture, they buff it up really, really well because that is what's creating the protective layer on the outside of the bit, which will make it much less likely to be corrosive. If it was to corrode, then you could have a bit that could have a failure uh, on you, could even be when you're going cross-country or something. So just make sure that, that it's smooth and well-finished. Also look to see that all of the joints are even and that there are no sharp edges, there's no poor soldering. So if you've got two joints that are created together, they've obviously been fabricated and sort of soldered together. So make sure that ideally you can't really see that join at all. It's smooth and consistent. All of these are signs of a bit that's been well made and well finished then actually feel all over the bit again feel all over it feeling for anything lumps bumps anything that shouldn't be there that is smooth finished consistently and that the side rings or sliding side sections move evenly when you implement them they don't uh, get stuck or, or move unevenly at all where you've got joints perhaps on a single jointed bit make sure that the joint is actually in the middle so as you fold the bit in half that each of the branches each of the cannons of the bit are consistent in design to give an even contact in the horse's mouth and with bits such as a waterford mouth where you've got a multi-sectioned area within the horse's mouth make sure that the area that is actually between the cheeks of the bit and the edge of his mouth it has a smooth area actually directly in the edges of the horse's mouth because otherwise it could pinch and rub and with curb chains just hold them in one hand twist them smooth and make sure that again that they're all very smooth consistent in the field that there are no lumps or bumps where the actual little chains have been joined together so when you have the chance go into your tack room Get out all different selection of bits that you may have there, old, new, etc. And just really start having a close look. And you'll be surprised how quickly you start to pick up some of the pointers that I've mentioned. On bits with a curb chain, they'll have a curb chain hook to hold the curb chain onto the bit itself. 
but the A should simply follow the line of contact of the curb chain onto the bit. So really look at the quality of your bit's curb chains. They should lie evenly and consistently from the bit through onto the curb chain. Poorly made ones will stick out at odd angles, sometimes they'll be on upside down, or they will actually make the fitting, correct alignment of the curb chain around the horse's chin groove incorrect. So again, just take that little bit more time, a little bit more awareness to have an, a close look at that next time you're using a bit with a curb chain. So I hope you found that useful and interesting. Uh, to find out more information of where you can seek services to help you and your horse with saddle, bridle and bit fit, please go to beta-uk.org and search our members directory. Beta are the British Equestrian Trade Association here to serve you and your horse. Look out for the big Beta logo when you shop in store as a sign of a good approved retailer. See you next time. Thank you, Tricia. Trisha will be back with us next week to finish her mini-series by talking about the part of the rider in the use of bits and bitting. Our interview will be with Scott Brash, looking forward to the Royal Windsor Horse Show, talking about his current horses and giving some insight into how he trains. Plus, of course, we'll review all the action from badminton. And don't forget, we have the daily podcast from badminton all this week, supported by Bailey's Performance Balancer. See you there, or see you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.